Hello, you're very welcome to the latest episode of The Week That Really Was with me, John McGurk. I'm glad to be back. Last week, this show was in the very capable hands of David and my colleague Gary Kavanaugh while I recovered from my inaugural, hopefully final, bout of COVID-19, which wasn't a very pleasant experience. But we're back this week. Uh, it's the second week in January. We're about two weeks away from payday. It's wet. It's windy. It's miserable. The health service is on the verge of collapse and we have a lot to talk about. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the main political event of the week, which was the resignation of Damien English from government. We're going to run through the issues with the health service with our guest, Cormac Lucy, who we're very glad to have back after he was such a hit the last time he was on this show. And we're going to talk a little bit um, about the immigration issues that are still plaguing the country with the T-shirt this afternoon, suggesting that perhaps it might just be time to get tough. David, how are you? Did you miss me last week? Oh, very badly. Very sorry for you now with COVID. I had my <laughs> bout in April. Very mild. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was no fun. I have to say, it was no fun at all. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, so uh, what was your take on uh, the the resignation of Damien English today? Well, I suppose he had to go because, I mean, it would have been unacceptable uh, from a government of his own point of view to to make this announcement that he had put down, uh, that he had wrongly informed the local county council when he was uh, looking to build a standalone house that he had no other property. Um, so there was no way he could stay because the uh, political row when there's a shortage of housing in the country and him being a junior minister would have been immense. So he decided to put out the fire immediately by his resignation. Um, apparently he's a nice guy, um, never met him. Um, that probably doesn't particularly have anything to do with it. Um, but if you were unpopular around Leinster House, you'd probably have a lot more people calling for you to resign as a TD altogether. I think that would be over the top. I think he's done enough. Um, and there it is. He is a very nice guy, I have to say. Now, I wouldn't claim to know him at all. But any time I've ever met him, he's always struck me as a, as a very nice guy. And I know his constituents speak very highly of him, and he's regarded as a very hard constituency worker. But if you or I did what he did, um, uh, there would be issues. And I think it's right, personally, that there were issues with what he did. Cormac, you were saying before we went on air, though, that you think maybe um, this level of scrutiny and we're not disputing what Damien English did was wrong, but this level of scrutiny isn't exactly an advertisement for people who want to get into politics. That's true, John. I mean, last week we had the incident where uh, some farmer down in, in East Galway threw bags of, uh, of cow shit at Anne Rabbit and Kieran Cannon. And this week we have Damien English. Now, he did, he did re- breach the law, but I, I just worry that by imposing ever more restrictive reporting obligations on our public representatives by making political fundraising ever more restrictive, that we're just putting tripwires in in the way of elected politicians when being a politician is already pretty unattractive. Uh, And I think that's a mistake. I also think that there is a, a disproportionate focus in our public debate on holding elected public officials to account and insufficient time given to holding unelected public officials to account. Mm-hmm. And if you're uh, a senior civil servant, if you're the Secretary General of the Department of Finance or the Department of Health, you have a, a greater and more enduring influence on public policy than your notional political head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of of the developments of the last 30 and 40 years have been to shift power 
from elected public officials to unelected public officials. And I think organs like the, the Irish Times facilitate that rather than consider is this something that we should be leaning against rather than propping up? Which, which, by the way, brings us rather neatly to the um, usual winter health crisis, I guess, because there we have um, a system that's run almost entirely by unelected officials, fair enough, but very little accountability. Well, I'm going to start on this one, David, by saying uh, what I said on a piece I wrote during the week, which is that I, I think uh, in this one, officials get too much blame and the public gets far too little. You know, I was... Um, I was, I was going through the figures there during the week and, and over the lifetime, I don't want to say over the lifetime of this government, because obviously it's a slightly different configuration of a government. But since the election of 2011, where Fianna Fáil essentially died as the main political force in the country and Fine Gael replaced it, uh, Fine Gael had been in office continually. And in that time, health spending has increased from about 13 billion per annum to 23 billion per annum. So 10,000 million extra per year, 27 million extra per day we spend on the health service. And yet there are fewer beds than there were in the year 2000 in our health system. And I was trying to figure out why this is. And it occurred to me that the only time in my lifetime that the public have actually gotten angry enough about the health service to imperil the life of a government was shortly before Fine Gael came into power, when the then Fianna Fáil government um, proposed reforming medical cards for over 75s to make them means tested. And that nearly brought the government down because you were taking away a direct entitlement from a very from a relatively wealthy group of people, um, which doesn't really impact frontline service, services at all. And in, the Great years, power. and in the intervening years since then, if you think about where the extra health money has gone, now not all of it has gone here, but uh, free GP visits for under fives, um, free contraception for women under 25, uh, long-term illness um, cover for everybody, regardless of income or wealth, um, I, I when I was I went to the doctor last week because I was pretty bad with COVID. At the end of the appointment, I took out my fifty quid to hand him to pay for the appointment. He said, "Oh no, no, I can claim that back because it's a COVID assessment. It's entirely free." Um, even though it was just like every other GP appointment, except that I had COVID. And it seems to me that all this extra money on health service is going to things that buy off little groups of voters, but don't do anything at all to impact frontline service delivery. Uh, where it's actually needed, where there are sick people in our hospitals and our A&Es. What's your take on that, Cormac? Are are there more structural issues than simply the voters voting for the wrong things? Well, I think there's a a chronically undermanaged system. Now, I know we've set up the health services executive specifically to manage health services and to try to depoliticise their management. But they replaced the regional health boards Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the government is envisaging going back to regional administration of health services. So this kind of sums up the, the speciousness of a lot of public policy making in this area. You know, Brian Cowan described the health area as Angola because you're waiting for the next landmine to blow up. Uh, and we haven't moved on. But one area that strikes me is... Why is the HSE not thinking of of using technology and just having uh, a phone-in GP service where instead of going down to your local GP, uh, risking cross-infecting other ailing people, you phone somebody up and have a quick five or ten minute consultation uh, and and, and do that quickly? Or what about artificial uh, intelligence? That is happening more often, though, isn't it? I mean, obviously, during COVID, there was a lot of online consultation. And I think that's continued in a lot of cases that you just 
you know, phone them and they, or they phone you and you set up your appointment and they renew your prescription or whatever the case may be. But this is being done at a, at a decentralised GP by GP basis. That's true. Why isn't the HSE doing this on a national basis, just a phone line uh, and off you go? Uh, and I just think it's everybody is, is assuming that the system can't be changed and that we must operate with the system as it is and we can make very minor modifications uh, to, to that rather than thinking afresh and saying, well, what could we, if we were developing a health service today from scratch, how might we make it more user-friendly? Uh, uh, sorry, I just want to interrupt you there, Cormac, because I want to ask you a specific, because you're talking about reform and change, and I think it's a very good, uh, it's a very good point. But if you remember when, when this, when the governing party, Fine Gael, was elected, I don't say this government, but when Fine Gael was first elected, if you remember, Enda Kenny had his five-point plan or his contract for Better Ireland, whatever it was. And I think point one or two on that was a massive overhaul of the health service to a Dutch model of um, publicly subsidised health insurance, decentralising the system, making it more competitive, profit-driven in order to improve and enhance and sharpen service delivery. And then that just, it, it, I, I think they had about three committee meetings about it after they took power and just died and the solution came to, it came to be just give the HSE more money. What do you think happened there? I think like so much today, the primary focus was on having a plausible position that would get Fine Gael through an election rather than having a, a, a fully considered policy idea that you were committed to delivering. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was smart politics, but there wasn't much uh, thought given through to administering it or rolling it out or implementing it. Uh, and then it got lost in the the deluge of priorities that incoming governments are inevitably going to be hit with. If I can, if I can just you know um, widen the focus a bit, um, I was seeing a it was a piece in the BBC yesterday. It was on the website, and it was saying France is also facing a usual winter health crisis. And Emmanuel Macron was giving out about the fact here we have this endless winter crisis keeps happening every single year. And this particular BBC article was saying. France has more doctors per head of population than Britain, which is obviously what the BBC was comparing the French situation to, and many more nurses. And yet the problem just goes on and on and on. And I presume they have a very different health system, I don't know, to Britain or Ireland. And yet there's the crisis. And um, a big, big part of the problem, um, which is never going to be solved, in my view, is uh, we are rapidly getting older. And the number of people over 65 is set to double between now and is it 2035 or something, or even less, and I'll be one of them. Um, and what do you do about that? Um, and it, it, there's nothing to be done about that. And that obviously puts more and more demands on the system. Um, so I think there's also uh, a, a need to realize that in a sense, while we obviously need to do everything re- that we realistically can to solve the health crisis and the waiting lists and the winter health crisis. And there needs to be a sense of realism about the thing as well. It is probably never going to be solved. And in fact, it's quite likely to get worse as the population ages. Um, uh, The number of GPs um, is apparently set to diminish over the next few years because an awful lot is set for retirement. I think the average GP in Ireland is over the age of 50. Apparently in France, by the way, something like half of them are, are over the age of 50. Many find the work a great strain. I think, I think actually general practice, to a certain extent, 
has a vocations crisis, not as bad, but not entirely dissimilar from the priesthood in that it is a vocation. Um, it was a, was a very high status job. It still is pretty high status, but there's lots of competition now for high status jobs. So if you're a top performing student, you're not necessarily going to become a doctor like people would have in the past. So mm-hmm. it's not as attractive as it used to be. Um, these uh, single practice, these single GP rural practices are becoming very hard to maintain. So they're having great difficulty getting uh, rural GPs. Apparently, there's, France obviously a much bigger country. There's whole tracts of France without any GPs and they're not going to get any. And they're offering huge bonuses to GPs who are going work in those areas and they still can't get any now we're on fishing expeditions in um third world countries as i still consider south africa to be they have a shortage of doctors um uh western europe is draining romania of, of doctors and a really kind of you know beggar my neighbor sort of policy and we're still not going to be able to do it there's a shortage of nurses a shortage of uh, of consultant doctors even though the number has increased a lot over the last number of years so i actually think at a certain level the problem is insoluble Mm-hmm. And it's going to get worse and people need to adjust their expectations. Well, my own GP, just to say on that, because I was in with him last week, and I know for a fact, without giving his name or anything like that, he's a lone GP, works in a practice. He's in there every morning at 8am 8, 8 and he's out of there every evening at maybe 7, which is a, an 11 hour day. Um, he's seeing he's seeing 60 or 70 patients in a day. and I don't know how he does it. I, I, I couldn't work that hard i would burn out and get and they are stuff. burning out they are burning out and i mean covid didn't help practice nurses too my wife is a practice nurse um and more are thinking of quitting or dropping down to part-time work and of course the more quit or revert to part-time work the worse the crisis is going to get and then the remaining gps burn out even faster and same with the hospitals with the nurses and the doctors um so it's a real problem and uh, i just no politician has the nerve to say to the public um at a certain level uh, the health crisis in the sense of long waiting lists and uh, and long waits in emergency departments is probably going to get worse. In fact, I can't see how it can't get worse, not with a rapidly aging population. I, I, I just think it's impossible not to get worse. Well, I'm going to step way outside the Overton window here and um, and, and, and ask Cormac a question um, because, and hopefully he will sensibly disagree with me. But it strikes me that you hear about these crises in Ireland and the UK and in France, where there's a national health health system and, and the state pays for it. You don't hear about, about this crisis on anything like the scale we have it in the United States, where the health system is, by and large, broadly privately operated and funded by, by private health insurance. Now, of course, there are people who can't get health insurance, which is the big downside to that system. But there are lots of doctors. The hospitals tend to be nicer, bigger, with more advanced treatments. Have we just... Cormac, on a fundamental level, is it time to reassess the idea of state health care or at least the way in which it is delivered full stop, not just in Ireland, but right across the sort of European model? It probably is, but the uh, there will be limited political support for doing that. And if you were to campaign for it, a lot of uh, fears would be thrown up in your path that would make it politically impossible to uh, achieve that. But it strikes me. It strikes me that uh, you know, with the decline, the foreseeable decline in uh, GP availability, and the foreseeable increase in elderly patients who are more vulnerable to illnesses and need GP consultations, that the the impetus for uh, remote GP services, for artificial intelligence, for changing the way in which prescriptions are uh, issued that that is all the more obvious. 
What do you mean by artificial uh, intelligence? Are you talking about Dr. Google? Because I, for one, use Dr. Yeah. Google a lot. Yeah. And to be honest, to be honest with you, again, and, and, and basically, essentially, for the HSE to operate a system which will screen patients, ninety percent of whom probably have relatively straightforward symptoms, and the diagnosis can be done relatively straightforwardly, and then to have ten or twenty percent of more complicated cases referred to a live GP uh, operating the, behind the system, uh, and and get a, get out of this sort of 18th century system where you have to physically go into your GP and you're you're with other people who waiting who maybe who are probably infected so so it's just it's an incubation center like from why is nobody criticizing doctors waiting rooms answer because we can't think of an alternative but but here is an alternative uh, that that we should be willing to pursue and coming back to your question you know about why aren't we hearing complaints about America there's a there's a massive Powerful, there are several powerful lobbies who like and benefit from increased public spending uh, here in Ireland. And the best way to get that is to create fears over public uh, public health systems. And the best time of the year to do that is uh, January, February, March. And we get trolley counts, we get waiting lists, we get all the rest of it. Uh, but they're, they're all sort of below the radar level lobbying for more money for the health services. I'm slightly surprised, by the way, um, uh, given um, how we reacted to COVID and were willing to socially distance and limited numbers, the discipline we weren't locked down, limited numbers going into pubs and restaurants and the face masks and all this sort of stuff, that is not more of a clamour for some kind of COVID-style measures to get the thing back under control. There's been a little bit from the INMO about going back to public face mask wearing and that kind of thing, but a bit surprised and um, if you remember going back to the early days of COVID and indeed, you know, well into it, um, if you criticized any of the restrictions, you were accused of not caring that granny dies and one life is one too many. And that's gone. And I find that kind of interesting and a little bit refreshing, to be honest, because, of course, always the principle of proportionality must be applied. Um, but obviously, if we went back to social distancing and limited numbers and pubs, maybe not obviously, but, um, you know, you would begin to flatten the sombrero, flatten, what was it um, um, that Boris Johnson said, flatten the sombrero, was it? <laughs> um, at the time of COVID. So I'm just, I'm, I, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that those um, calls are not too loud and too strident to go back to anything resembling that. Well, there were some. I mean, the, the Irish Times editorial board seems quite keen on it, but it strikes me as well that... that what were they asking for? Well, they, they, they've been running a lot of pieces about, you know, calling for masks and giving that a lot of air, air, air a lot of column inches I've noticed recently mm. um, but I mean it's, it strikes me that in the last two weeks in Ireland and I won't get into the details of the cases because obviously there will be um, there'll be investigations and, and all sorts of things but there have been two cases in, in Ireland in the last couple of weeks of girls under the age of 18 dying in the care of Irish hospitals where there is a plausible case to be made that they, they died because they did not receive treatment or were not seen fast enough in our accident and emergency rooms. One was a case of meningitis and the other, I, I can't recall what the specific ailment was, but the family seemed to believe that the person had been seen quicker, they'd still be alive. Um, and, and, and it just strikes me that the health service, we talked a lot during COVID about the health service being on the brink of collapse and so on and so forth. It never quite got this bad. 
where there were where, where there were plausible claims of people losing their lives because they're not being seen in time. Um, and so I want to but, but 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 the, this comes down to to uh, this may be a management problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if my father worked as a doctor in Northern Ireland until 1970, and we moved down to Castlebar then, and uh, having been in a hospital in Northern Ireland, they had a, a disaster plan. You know, what do we do in Banbridge if there's a disaster? So my dad uh, managed to develop a disaster plan for Castle Bar. And, you know, if a plane crashes or a bus crashes and there's 30 people seriously injured, how does a hospital respond? And the first thing it does is it triages the patients. Yep. It's so it, it strikes me as uh, odd that there should be people waiting at a hospital to see a doctor uh, when they should they should be seeing a doctor first thing so the doctor can determine is this a potential emergency is or is this something that can wait uh, and I wonder am I missing something or is there is this not happening and is that something that needs to be uh, put in place well it does happen to some extent in my personal experience but what always strikes me having been to any um particularly the one in University Hospital Limerick, which, of course, is, is one of the worst in the country, everybody agrees, um, is that you have an, a large number of people there who, who go in and they may be seen initially after an hour or so by, a, by a, you know, and then told to go back to the waiting room. But there are people there who should just be told to go home. You know, you're, you're not going to die. You're not at any imminent risk. Um, you know, your GP can give you a painkiller and we will make an outpatient appointment for you at a point in the future. Accident and emergency is, as a name, that implies what it's supposed to be for, which is for accidents and emergencies. And for me, an emergency is where there is a serious risk to your imminent health or life. And in a lot of cases, there are people sitting in accidents and emergencies with burns on their arm or what have you that are, while painful and uncomfortable and distressing, are not an imminent threat to their life or their health. And I don't know why those people are being told to sit there for 18 hours to see a doctor when they could be told to go home, put ice on it and wait in much more comfort at home. And that, that I think, backs up your case, Cormac, that in in many cases, this is basic common sense management not happening. Another... another Just just, just to interrupt, uh, there used to be something in in the health service called case mixed data where individual hospitals were evaluated on the efficiency with which they handled the full range of procedures they have to operate. And those that were less efficient got less money. Those that were more efficient got more money. And that was quietly disappeared. So if I became health minister in the morning, the first thing I would do is find out how that disappeared and who disappeared it. Mm-hmm. And I'd then be calling on the head of HR uh, to take the dust off the uh, the P45 forms they have in there and get ready to type. I mean, really, it is, it, it's just unconscionable that something that uh, was brought in and functioning and <clears throat> promoting efficiency was, was quietly and behind the bicycle shed uh, with nobody viewing it, just quietly sort of exterminated. Uh, so I am I'm, I'm gravely sceptical about whether the senior civil servants of the Department of Health, uh, the senior functionaries in the HSE are actually interested in efficiency. I, 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 and I'm just terribly worried that we've developed this behemoth 
where there are loads of worried looking people wandering around the place with clipboards, but there's nobody in charge. There, there's nobody giving a leadership impulse uh, saying, clear the A&Es of people who don't really need to be there, assess people when they arrive, uh, you know, just get things moving. Uh, now, I, I, I fully agree with David that there are severe constraints on what can be done and that an aging population uh, is a recipe for increased demand. But another area in the health service that needs fixing is, and this has been an issue for 40 years, it is the, the limited numbers in our medical schools. Uh, so if it were me, I would close a medical school for the, the failure of the rest of them to increase numbers, and I would force the others to double their numbers. There, there has to be something that pays a price for inefficiency. Some The notion that nobody is to blame, everybody's just been drifting along, uh, I find that deeply unacceptable. And, and the whole focus of our system and the sort of the Irish Times RTE school of politics is uh, the minister is responsible for everything. Uh, you know, heaven forfend that we might imagine that unelected public officials are responsible for anything. I, I think we have to spread the responsibility and the accountability and the price for failure around a bit better and a bit more. You were mentioning there, sorry, you were mentioning there, Cormac, earlier about um, um, how we tend to put civil servants, um, at least the Irish Times does, certainly up on a pedestal and make them unaccountable. Uh, and I think this is kind of part of the mythology of T.K. Whittaker in a way. He was a civil servant who uh, saved Ireland um, back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, he's a very model civil servant, and, so, and all civil servants are like him, and there's no incompetence in the civil service, and they're all brilliant people. Um, and of course, it's nonsense. Um, why would they all be brilliant people? Doesn't I mean, no walk of life. Is well, he, he, he was elected. He was elected person of the century when uh, RTE did, did a series where they had various people championing uh, nominees. Uh, and I'd have backed my old boss, Michael <clears throat> McDougall, who was nominating Michael Collins. Uh, T.K. Whitaker opposed the low corporate tax strategy that has been central to Ireland's economic rebirth. Uh, it, it, it was a Department of Industry and Commerce idea. The Department of Finance didn't want the loss of revenue, pitiful and all as it was. And it was pushed through by John A. Costello. This is the extraordinary thing. Nobody knows this other than mm. Professor Frank Barry in Trinity <laughs> College, who wrote an outstanding piece of research. Uh, it didn't feature in David McCullough's biography of John A. Costello. Uh, so Costello essentially overruled the Department of Finance and the Minister for Finance uh, and said, you're to put that in. And that went over the protests of Whitaker. And the other thing about Whitaker was, he left the uh, Department of Finance in 1969. In their definitive review of Irish economic history since independence, uh, Cormac O'Grada and uh, Kevin O'Rourke stated that Irish relative economic underperformance lasted until 1973. So Ireland's economic growth may have lifted while Whitaker uh, was behind the wheel uh, in the Department of Finance, but it lifted as a result of being lifted by our neighbours, and it lifted by less than our neighbours. 
so I think TK Whitaker was a good man. I think his instincts were correct. I think his policies were broadly, the policies and practices he promoted were broadly correct. But the, the hero worship he has received, I find uh, grotesquely disproportionate. And it has a knock-on effect to this day because um, we, because again, the civil service gets put on a pedestal and all civil servants are like TK Whittaker and if only the politicians weren't getting in the way. Uh, just kind of probably one last thing to say before we move on from the health thing. Like another side, of, I mean, way back decades ago, there were people warning that um, uh, the health system was essentially a bottomless pit for public money because you could never satisfy the public demand for health. Um, And one of the things it's doing is becoming a victim of its own success to a certain extent because every time, for example, they develop a new screening program, there's a new queue, uh, there's new demand, but with the same number of doctors a lot of the time. Um, uh, And then that person gets moved along to the next stage in the whole process. And then there's new procedures and treatments developed and new, sometimes very expensive drugs developed. And you can't stop any of this. It's going to happen. Um, but obviously it gets more and more expensive. Uh, it takes more and more people to um, uh, carry out all this. But and, and there's another issue, David, and that is if we had a, a terribly inefficient, dangerous health service and if it killed all its patients, <laughs> they wouldn't be around to demand health services in the future. <laughs> so every, every time the health service cures somebody, and it is wonderful that they do. They they they, they leave a potential patient uh, in the system who will. And as we get older and older, and as we're cured of more and more things, we're going to be afflicted by more and more conditions, and will need ever greater uh, medical attention. So, in in some ways, in many ways, the health service is a victim of its own medical success, and that and then the open ended nature of. Uh, the government's services offering means that it it, it risks facing uh, ever-growing demand for its services. Well, that's all very cheery. So basically, we've no solution. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's only going to get worse. Then. No, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence uh, remote GP services, remote prescription services, if that can be done in a medically safe way, uh, bring back the case mix model. Uh, you know, there are certain things that we can do <laughs> Uh, and so I, I, I would be wary of, of just giving up on the whole thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if somebody invited me to be Minister for Health, uh, I'm not sure I'd be rushing to accept the offer. <laughs> well, like you, I think I'd be bringing out a lot of P45 forms because I think the system does. It, the, the thing it lacks most of all for me is accountability. Um, because the only person in this country in the health service who has any prospect whatsoever of losing their job is Stephen Donnelly. And yeah. Stephen Donnelly is uh, not really running the thing. You have uh, you have a secretary general in the Department of Health. You have a chief executive of the HSE who both who both find people they may be, but they both have vastly more power over the day to day running of the health service than the elected minister has. Which is, by the way, just how politicians want it because those people can be blamed and you can't vote against them. And there's and uh, they've done the same uh, injustice with the Garda Síochána and the Garda Authority. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it's very much the same model of ministers just sort of s- s- slithering away from responsibility. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've talked enough about this problem without solving it. Let's see if there's another one we can't solve. Uh, it is, we record as always on Thursday evening. Um, this evening across Dublin, uh, in, in terrible weather conditions, um, wind, rain, general misery, there were yet another uh, series of 
protests. Yeah, our politicians are very much opposed to these protests and the protesters involved in relation to the uh, accommodation of migrants in the capital city and its surrounds. Um, I thought it was very noticeable over the Christmas period while I was sick. There was an incident in Drimna where, where migrants were apparently and inexplicably, in my view, accommodated in a primary school while that school was closed. And we had protesters um, from the local community, local parents who were very upset about this. And I thought it was very interesting that the focus of this protest was um, send them to Dawkey. Or why are there mm-hmm. why are there why are there why are the schools in Dawkey not just as, as suitable for this purpose as our school is? And I think there's a point to that because one of the things, uh, if you'll indulge me, gents, that's that's very interesting in the last couple of months has been if you look at the U.S. and you look at Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas, who've been doing things like shipping migrants off to um, Martha's Vineyard from the Mexican border or the or the, the Caribbean border with yeah, Cuba. To the posh parts of America. To the posh parts of America. And if you look in Italy, where Georgia Maloney this week has started redirecting migrants to uh, well-to-do Italian towns with impeccably left-wing mayors. Um, I think it's interesting. And I want your thoughts on this. Is the government perhaps being a little bit clever in, in sending an awful lot of these people to working-class locations that have had a tendency in recent years to cast their votes for Sinn Féin candidates and left-wing independent candidates where there aren't that many Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil TDs? Because the question no one is asking, but I look at the pattern, I look at where these people are going, and I look at what other politicians are doing, and I'm, I'm thinking, are these people as 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 cynical as um, their nemesis in Florida, Texas, and Italy are? Uh, or is it just entirely coincidental that these schools are more suitable? I don't, I don't think, I don't think necessarily it is what you're saying it is. Um, uh, I think, I mean, obviously there's plenty in rural areas as well, Killarney, for example. So they're, they're putting them where there's lots of hotels and where they can book rooms and hotels. And the East Wall situation was, um, an old ESB building or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these sort of, um, run-down working-class communities sometimes have these kind of abandoned buildings and they decide we'll put them in there. And there tends to be fewer of those buildings in middle-class areas. Um, so I think that's part of it. I mean, mind you, I take over the Herbert Park Hotel in Balls Bridge and um, put a lot of them in there and, you know, see what they think. But the school's point is a good one. But I don't think it's pure cynicism and that having to go somehow with Sinn Féin and Sinn Féin voters. I don't think that's it. I think it's kind of a structural thing going on. Uh, but certainly... Uh, a means that these communities feel there is not proper burden sharing going on. And of course, they are absolutely and totally correct about that. Well, there's less there's less problems from these communities, too, because if you put people into the Herbert Park Hotel in Bald Bridge, you will get local resistance, but it'll be of a different kind. And it'll wear robes and, and wigs on its head and summon you down to the forecourts for an appointment to discuss the suitability for a local area and planning legislation and all the rest of it. And it won't be, and I say this with the greatest respect to the people protesting, but it won't be working class people without that many resources chanting, get them out, which is much more politically convenient for the government because it can be recast as something slightly less than civilized. Um, and I think there's, um, I, 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 I tend to give more credit to our politicians and their cynicism in relation to this issue than others might. Uh, and I, I do think there is an element of put these people where the resistance is likely to be of a more 
uh, choose my words carefully, but a, but a more a more easy to oppose nature. A non a non Finnegale base. Yeah, Cormac, am I mad? I think you're over uh, interpreting the situation. Supposing I'm a I'm a Finnegale minister and I want to achieve the policy objective you've just set out. Uh, how do I go about doing it? You know, how do I get my secretary general and his or her assistant secretary and the assistant, uh, the, the principal officer who, who's actually running, who's making this policy happen? How do I uh, get them to do this in a manner that won't ever rebound or, or leak in a way that will blow up in my face? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I, I just don't see. In practical terms, how you you if you wanted to do this, how you could make it happen without running a massive risk that you would be exposed, and uh, then you you really should resign. Uh, you know, you, you, there'd be a much greater cause to have you resign than with with uh, Damien English this evening. Okay, there is, by the way, there's undoubtedly a shift in the wind um, on this issue because, and you and you've written about this, John. A guy with kind of impeccably um, establishment credentials, Matt Cooper, uh, saying that we need to slow down the numbers coming in, uh, paraphrasing, because it will feed the far right. And um, um, Michael McDool, who obviously you've worked with Cormac, saying something similar, and they're both right. But um, there are people who weren't saying this a few weeks ago, and now they're saying it. And I heard an interview today, Pat Kenny on his show was interviewing Nick Henderson of the Irish Refugee Council and Pat asked him all the right questions um, uh, because Nick Henderson was saying, well, we need to build accommodation and housing for asylum seekers. And Pat's saying, well, we have uh, plenty of Irish people um, who are homeless and are in hotels or hostels. They need houses too. So where are you going to magic up all these houses from? And Henderson couldn't give him a proper answer. And Pat also was pointing out that lots of these asylum seekers are coming from officially safe countries like Albania and Georgia. So what's that all about? And uh, Henderson tried, well, they might, you know, maybe they are fleeing trouble, uh, but struggled to answer. And then Pat also said, a lot are coming in with no documents. Uh, they definitely got on the plane with documents because if they're coming in from Paris, they wouldn't have been let on the plane without documents. So the documentation is clearly being destroyed on the plane and they're not being sent straight back. So what's the story? And you couldn't really answer that question either. But to me, it was interesting that the questions are now beginning to be asked. So I think there's a definite shift in the wind taking place. And it should be said that the Taoiseach this evening, or was it yesterday evening, I can't recall, but this week, mm. um, uh, made similar comments where he was suggesting that that uh, the well, that's bad news because everything Leo says that is of political import, he does nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's he's just a loudmouth who is into uh, publicity but not into administration. You speak like uh, you speak like somebody Cormac who gets up early in the morning and was once hopeful. To hear the correct there would be good news, there will be good correct. news for you. <laughs> correct, and I mean, is 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 comments about uh, if the whether the Guardi should be armed was a matter for Commissioner Drew Harris. What a stupid thing to say! It got some headlines, uh, but you know that is a, a matter for political judgment. Obviously, Drew Harris would have an as Commissioner of the Guardi would have an input into that debate, but ultimately, that's a political choice. Uh, his 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 
his comments at the end of Sean O'Rourke's documentary that if Fine Gael went into government with Sinn Féin, he would resign from Fine Gael. Again, motor mouth stuff. Uh, if we believe in the peace process, if we believe that Fianna Fáil, Plan the Public, the Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, were, were weaned away from paramilitarism towards parliamentarianism, and if we believe Sinn Féin is on that track, well then, we should not be ruling out, as a matter of principle, their uh, participation in government. And to sort of give the other side of the argument, if we believe the International Monitoring uh, Commission, I think it is, and their recent report saying the provisional IRA still exists, but is not on a war footing, well, then we should be dealing with Sinn Féin much more aggressively, saying you've, you've got five years to, uh, or you've got maybe two years uh, for the IRA to disappear. Otherwise, you will not be allowed to take up your seats in Doyle Aaron. <laughs> you know, you, he, but he's just uh, blathering, endless blather and no policy, no administration, no action. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Dul Cormac, and I think we're coming up against our self-imposed time limit shortly, is there a shift in the atmosphere, in the wind on this issue, do you think? Oh, I think there is, yeah. Now, it's, it's, it, it's a small shift. Uh, and whether the government, I, I think more of more import were, were Emmanuel Macron's comments uh, on the topic. Uh, what did he say? Uh, he, he said something about a month ago where, where he was expressing grave concern at the numbers coming in uh, to France and he wanted things tightened up. Now, I, I would trust his administrative capacity much more than those of Leo Varadkar, uh, but he's kind of creating a, a higher level of climate that people on the on sort of the soft left in Ireland can move towards in also calling for more stringent application of rules uh, and a better shakeout for less well-off people in Ireland well, uh, in this wider immigration issue. France, I saw this report from Britain and I was looking at um, uh, the refusal rate of, um, of um, asylum claims in various EU countries, and it included Ireland. Now, I was comparing mainly Britain with other EU countries. So the refusal rate, I think, in Britain is something like maybe 25%. In France, this is on first-time applications, it is 75%. The EU average is a little over 60%. This is the refusal rate on, on, on first-time applications. In Ireland, the refusal rate last year, or maybe it was 2021, was only 5%. Now, there's something really up there when we have such a tiny refusal rate. Um, it means we're not operating the system properly. Um, and hence, there's a bit of a public backlash developing against the whole thing. And in France, of course, it's already happened. And the comment you said that Emmanuel Macron made, Cormac, would have him labelled far right here. No question. He'd be a far right extremist. Mm -hmm. um, Michel Barnier, of course, uh, the Brexit negotiator, great hero of Ireland, um, when he was running for the uh, nomination uh, to be the presidential candidate for his own Republican Party in France, um, with a bit of a waste of time because, of course, they never get anywhere anymore in the presidential election, he said the EU needs to completely close its borders until it gets its house in order and can, uh, you know, settle the immigration problem and the asylum seeking the, and the illegals coming in. That would also have him labelled far right. But he was an absolute hero of the Irish political establishment throughout that entire time. Posh, sophisticated, aristocratic Michel Barnier stabbed up to the English and then he makes this comment. 
And as I say, that would have him labelled an extremist here. Well, if I can just say, I think, uh, because you, you raise a very important issue, David, which is the, the refusal rate. But I, I think it all comes back to a bigger problem in Ireland where the, where, the, where the asylum issue is a particularly good example of the problem. And that is that there are very few massively powerful lobby groups left in Ireland because of the way in which we perform political funding. There aren't that many of the farmers, if anything, doesn't rely on the farmers anymore, Labour doesn't rely on the trade unions and so on and so forth. But the one that does remain, and I say this with respect to my friends in the profession and particularly to my own lawyer, who's great, but is the legal profession. And we have this bizarre asylum system where you can be refused asylum in Ireland and the first thing you do is appeal. And then you can lose your appeal and there's another appeal to a higher court and eventually off to Europe. And we've legalized the whole system to such an extent that the whole thing is a massive money spinner for a very small group of lawyers who specialize in this area. Clogs up the courts. Our court system is is, is one of the slowest in the Western world, regardless of your case, but it's very slow in relation to immigration. Um, we can't do legal reform in this country because the lawyers are the one last remaining group who make significant political donations right across the board to all political parties. Um, and as a result of that, we have this in, this system where the politicians basically can't do anything because of this huge human rights legal structure we've created, whereby once you get in this door of the country, uh, the door of the country, regardless of your situation, you're immediately into this Byzantine legal process which can take 10 or 15 years to be deported. And then at the end of the, of the process, if you are eventually, all your appeals are exhausted, the government will tell you, you you have to be deported, but it's a self-deportation program and it's up to you to, it's up to, you to remove yourself from the jurisdiction if you wish. And Absurd. then at, at the end of the day, I mean, we have cases in this country of people who have actually committed criminal offences while under deport, self-deportation order, gone to prison, been released back into the society that they were told to deport themselves from, and they're still walking the streets. Um, so I think uh, there are a lot of problems in this country that are uh, as a result of our legal system and its complete immunity to reform or efficiency. And I think asylum is right at the top of that list. Uh, Cormac, am I overstating that case or do I have a point there? I think you have a major point. And uh, the, the lengthening delays in legal cases mm-hmm. is, is simply shocking. Occasionally, I'll, I'll download a legal judgment and have a read of it, and it's they're they're way, way, way too long and complicated, and I don't know, written for academic effect. I I, mm-hmm. I just Every there judgment. isn't a focus on 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 speedy decision making. There's a focus on looking good to your peers. So I think there has to be a confrontation with the legal profession and in particular with the judges, where they, somebody has to tell them this is what the, the way this is operating is simply, uh, it's good for you, but it is pretty atrocious for us. Well, well, so even, even so we, want you, we want you to come up with a plan to reform it. Mm-hmm. And even, uh, we're, going to, we're going to bring in a new schedule of the income tax code, Schedule Z, for income from legal earnings. We should probably take the last comment. Should I go on? That, that will be a surcharge of 10% in year one, 20% in year two. It will rise until these people fix the problem. Well, you know, I... I, I, no, I know. I'm, 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 I'm being a little uh, silly. We should, we should probably uh, take the last Advancing that notion. But something, something has to be done uh, because, 
you're right, John. We, we go around and around, and it paralyzes government. Uh, it paralyzes decision making. And while we have the benefit of mountains of corporation tax receipts from American multinationals, we can sustain that. But if they disappear, we're snookered. Well, I just want to say in relation to this, and I know it's a separate topic we're supposed to talk about, it, but it, it is not just the immigration system. It is, it is, it is almost everything that's. Uh, First of all, access to justice in this country is extortionate in terms of the costs uh, involved. I, I, I spoke to one person recently who got a legal bill for a relatively small case, which was eye-watering. Uh, it, was in, it was in the mid-five figures for something that, that really wasn't that significant at all. Second thing is, it's in terms of access to, to justice, uh, I use the example of my, my, my close friend of many years, Declan Ganley, who took a case during the lockdown, people might recall, in relation to the closure of churches. Now, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, he was taking the case that this was not constitutional and the government had overstepped the mark. By the time that case got to be heard, the lockdown was over and the judge having, um, well, I'm not going to impugn anyone's reputation, but 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 the, the, having, having the process having taken several hearings and motions and all the rest, but at the end of it, the judge said, oh, well, now, now it's over, the whole case is moot, so you don't need to get an answer on it. You know, and, and, and so there was somebody who'd taken the effort to try and vindicate not only his rights, but the rights of other people. And the legal system entirely, in my view, let him and everybody else down. And the costs of it to the state, because we all bore the costs, because it was a constitutional issue of public importance, were again in the, in the six figures, eye-watering stuff. So this is an area of society where I think there's a huge case for reform. And I think immigration is just another symptom of that. David, you wanted the last word. Um, I'm going to go completely off topic and uh, just mention uh, that today um, the British journalist and writer Paul Johnson died. He was an extremely significant figure in his day. Um, He was 94. He wrote this fantastic uh, book called A History of the Modern World, which came out in 1983. This is when Thatcher as prime minister was a huge supporter of Margaret Thatcher. He had moved from the left to the right. And um, uh, this book was kind of groundbreaking in that it was the first book, it was the first kind of um, popular history written that was an interpretation of the 20th century that wasn't left-wing. And it became a kind of uh, Bible for many people who'd have been leaning towards Reagan or Thatcher or even John Paul II. So I just want to say, Paul Johnson, rest in peace. And we echo that. Listen, we have gone on for just over our lot of time, but I'm sure you don't mind that. Um I want to say thank you very much to Cormac for, as ever, giving his insights. We'll have him back again soon. Um, thank you again to Gary Kavner for filling in to me last week, for me last week when I was unavailable. But for, from now until next week, when we're back, I want to say thank you to all our listeners. Um, I didn't get a chance to wish you all a happy new year. It's a bit late, but I'll do that. But in the interim, until next week, that, folks, was the week that really was. <laughs>